Welcome back to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. On today's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be continuing our series through the book of Philippians. But before we get to that, I want to invite you to come and to worship with us at Calvary. We're located at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And you can find out more information at www.calvaryfayetteville.com. If you have questions, send those in info at calvaryfayetteville.com or give us a call at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our study through the book of Philippians with a message entitled, Our Hope in Christ. You can find that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Let's listen together. I want to talk to you today about our hope in Christ, about the hope that we just sang about in that last song. It has been said that a person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. Hope. We just sang a wonderful testimony, a declaration of our faith for those who know Christ, that Christ is our hope in life and death. Listen to those words once again. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone. What is our only confidence? that our souls to him belong. Who holds our days within his hand? What comes apart from his command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ in which we stand. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Unto the grave, what shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. There we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will feast in endless joy when Christ is ours forevermore. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess. Christ is our hope in life and death. Where is your hope today? What gives you 
confidence and assurance in a troubled world. The Bible tells us that before a person knows Christ, he or she is without hope in this world. Ephesians chapter 2, he calls to Christians to remember that at that time, before you knew Jesus, you were separated from Christ. You were a stranger to the covenants of promises. You had no hope. And you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That is the message of Ephesians chapter 2. In contrast to the hopelessness of people without Jesus, those who truly know Christ, that hopelessness has been replaced by confidence and assurance. Not hope as we often think of it, as wishful thinking of something that may be true or may not be true. We just hope that it is. But the kind of hope the Bible talks about, for instance, in Hebrews 10, where it says, Brothers, we have confidence to enter into the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised Christ is faithful. Therefore, let us stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more, as you see that day, day is capitalized, that day of the Lord, as you see that day drawing near. And from Hebrews chapter 6, Listen to this assurance and confidence. We who have fled for refuge have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The anchor of our hope, the confidence, the assurance, the steadfastness of the anchor of our hope is not something that goes down, down, down to the deep, and dark recesses of the sea to find, hopefully, some kind of rock down there. 
But instead, the writer to the Hebrews says, our hope goes up, up, up. The anchor goes up behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies and is anchored around the very throne of God himself, our great high priest. Yes, we have a great hope in Christ. Well, remember from whence we have come in this book of Philippians. Paul is challenging these believers. He is writing from a Roman prison. He is in bondage. He does not know if he will survive or if he will be executed. He is writing to this church in Philippi, and he's challenging these people to stand firm in unity to advance the gospel courageously, to unselfishly put one another first ahead of themselves. He talked to them and gave them the words of a hymn that was sung in those days about how Christ humbled himself and he took on the form of flesh. He laid aside his heavenly prerogatives. He did not abandon his godliness but he left aside his privilege and his place in heaven. And he came to earth, and he took on the form of humanity. He became like us, for only someone like us could save us from our sins. And he humbled himself. He not only became a servant, not only became human, he died. Even the shameful and horrible and torturous death on a cross. He was dead and buried. But on the third day, he rose again. And he was victorious in his resurrection over death. He showed who he was to the apostles as he ascended back to heaven. And there in heaven, a coronation took place. And he was declared and given a name that is above every name, the name Lord. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. And because he humbled himself, because he was willing to do all of that, we should follow him and his example in humility. Now we are to make known Christ in his fullness. Paul said, that's my greatest ambition. And I pursue that. And all of God's children should do the same. Now we come to this last paragraph of chapter 3, our text today. And he tells us that in pursuing Christ, we have examples that we can follow. But we've got to choose the right examples to follow. And he contrasts two different kinds of people. We're going to read this in our text, beginning in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, 
Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for it. Paul is very clear in this passage that to be a true follower of Christ, one who could genuinely say, this one thing I do, you have to follow the right example in life. Now, friends, we all follow the example of people we hold in high esteem and respect, right? Do you not have examples in life that you have sought to follow and to imitate with your life? Things that you respected in them, things that you esteemed in them, inspired you and motivated you? I have all my life. I've had heroes like that. Now, they weren't always Christians. One of my first heroes, I remember as a young boy growing up, dare I say this, in the late 50s and early 60s, that was in the last century, folks. But growing up as a young boy, and the same time that some of you were, amen, I remember as a baseball-loving boy growing up in those days, my hero was Mickey Mantle. I loved Mickey Mantle, the Mick. And all of my friends wanted to be like Mickey, just like I wanted to be like Mickey. Now, we all tried to imitate him. None of us could hit like Mickey. And we were all too young to drink like Mickey. Now, in our innocence, we didn't know about that part of Mickey's life, and I'm glad we didn't. We just wanted to be like Mickey. But there's one thing we could do. We could run like Mickey. And every time one of us would hit the ball, we would imagine ourselves as the Mick in the lengthening shadows of Yankee Stadium after he had hit one into the upper deck of right field. We found ourselves trying to run like Mickey. You know what that looked like if you know anything about baseball. Leaning forward, head down, elbows pumping high behind you in that home run trot. We wanted so much to be like him. We sought to follow that example. As we got older, there were others we admired and respected and tried to imitate. In our dress, in our hairstyle, maybe our speech, and so on. Some of those people we tried to imitate weren't worthy of our efforts. whether they were rock stars or movie stars or whatever they were. But we sought to follow them. So when Paul 
tells the Philippians that they need to imitate him. He is saying to them, you need to follow the right kind of example. I want you to know that Christ is our ultimate example. But God has given us men like Paul and Peter in the Bible and others to follow their examples. And Paul, God has given us people that we know to follow. The, it, may be, it may come as a surprise to you to know that there are some of you sitting here this morning that in areas of my life, I am trying to imitate and be like you. Thank you, Lord, for godly, courageous Christians, ordinary Christians, who just keep plugging away, faithful, in spite of all the obstacles of life. And such are some of you. Paul begins, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Point number one, the imperatives of this passage. Now, I talked to you a few weeks ago about imperatives and indicatives. Do you remember that? This, is, this has to do with the Greek language in which these words were written. Imperatives are commands. Indicatives are indicators. They are information that help us understand the commands. Now Paul gives two commands in these five verses. And both of them, both of these imperatives are found in verse 17 when he says, follow me. Follow me. Join in imitating me. And then secondly, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Follow me. Focus on me. Two imperatives. Follow me. Focus on me. I think he understood that to follow someone, you've got to keep your focus on that person or you'll lose your way along the way. Now, it would sound a bit braggadocious, does it not, for Paul to say this? For Paul to say, listen, of all the people you can follow in life, follow me. And follow those of us, he includes some others, Keep your eyes focused on us who are walking according to the example you have in us. This would sound very arrogant and very braggadocious were it not for the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is the author of these words. And they are the words that God gave Paul. They are not Paul's words. They are God's words. Paul could have said, follow God. But nobody has ever seen God. You cannot focus on Him. You can focus your thoughts. You can focus on His Word. But you cannot see Him. 
He could have said, uh, be like Christ. But none of these people had ever seen the Lord Jesus when he walked on the earth. They just have the stories about him. The Gospels even were not yet in their hands. They had heard the stories. So he said, follow me. Focus on others like me. Understand, folks, Paul lived, and I hope you'll remember this word. It goes back a year or so in our studies. Paul lived a cruciform life. Do you remember that word cruciform? Cruce, coming from the word the cross, being crucified. Form, meaning shape. A cruciform life is a cross-shaped life. And Paul is saying, I seek to live a cross-shaped life life. I'm not just a follower of the one who hung on the cross and died for my sins, but I am such a serious follower of him that I am seeking to be crucified even as he was, of sacrificing myself, of sacrificing my own desires, of giving up my own ambitions in order to die to myself and to be like Jesus, to live a cruciform life. He has already said it in this chapter when he said, my ambition is that I may know him in his fullness the power of his resurrection, but also that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That's a cruciform life. He made it even plainer when he wrote to the Galatians in the Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Can you say that you are crucified with Christ? If you're a follower of Christ, you will be. If you are a follower of the Apostle Paul, imitating the right kind of person, you'll seek to give your life away. As Paul told the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. That's what it means to follow the right kind of example. Those are the imperatives of this passage. Follow me, focus on me. Now, in the next four verses, Paul gives two verses as examples of people not to follow. And then two verses of the characteristics of the people that we should follow as our examples as we seek to find our hope and our confidence fully in the Lord. So point number two, verses 15, or excuse me, verses 18 and 19, these are the hopeless people. The hopeless, verse 18 and 19, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk in enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Now let's walk back through very quickly and and let me tell you what he says about these people. 
And then I want to tell you what I think we can know otherwise about these people. He said, first of all, that they are many. That means great in magnitude or quantity. Folks, there are more people in this world that you should not follow their example than there are those that you should follow. Sad to say, oftentimes, even within the church, there are many that are not worthy of imitating. There are many who do not have their hearts set on the Lord. There are many who, though numbered among the people of God, they are living earthbound lives, not cruciform, cross-shaped lives. There are many of these people. He said their end is destruction. That word destruction means eternal ruin. It's talking about perdition. It's talking about hell. It's talking about separation from God. These people, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. What does that mean? Well, the belly is a term uh, used uh, in Scripture sometimes to signify our appetites, what we desire. It's not just our appetites in food. It is our desires in the flesh, our values, what we hold dear. Their God is their belly, their appetites, their inner self, and it's not focused on God. And their glory is in their shame. In other words, their shame, their, their disgrace, their dishonorable con conduct, they actually glory in what they should be ashamed of. The things that is their disgrace, the things about their lives that, that's dishonorable in its conduct, they glory in that. They find satisfaction in it. They boast about it. Their minds are set on earthly things. Their focus is all horizontal. It's not vertical. They are not following Paul. They are not focusing on men like Paul. They are, their, their minds are earthbound and worldly. They compare themselves with themselves, as Paul tells the Corinthians. These people only look at the world around them. That's what is important to them. And he finally says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They have become adversaries to God, to his Son, and to the message of the cross of Christ on which the Son died. They are enemies of that cross right there. Now, who are these people? Who are they? Who does Paul have in mind? He didn't name them. He didn't give us any kind of identity other than a description of what is unholy and what is hopeless about their lives. Some commentators, some scholars say that these are believers, they are Christians, but they are Christians who are not living up to their profession and their calling. Well, that's news to us, right? <laughs> 
Did you hear that description? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. It's the world that they can't care most about. They are enemies of the cross. I'm going to tell you, I don't believe these are saved people at all. I believe they are lost people. I believe they are not born again followers of Christ. So then why would Paul feel like he needed to warn these Christians at Philippi not to follow those unsaved people? I believe we have, and understand here, we have to somewhat read between the lines of what he's saying to us. Now I realize that's a dangerous thing to do in the Bible, isn't it? We should always focus on what we know. Not to add to Scripture, not to take away from Scripture. But evidently there was some reason why Paul felt like he needed to warn these believers, these faithful churchers at Philippi, not to follow the example of these people. Let me tell you what I believe about them. I believe these are people who knew the talk, but did not have the walk. They knew the talk, but they did not have the walk. Though they were walking as enemies of the cross, they knew how to talk like Christian people. These people were not unfamiliar with the gospel. They were not unfamiliar with the church. They were people that I believe not only knew the talk, but they were people who once had professed Christ as Lord and Savior. They had once professed Christ. They were, they were known to have been Christ followers, at least in name and in word and in profession. They probably had once professed faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. But third, somewhere, for some reason, they abandoned that profession and their obedience to Christ. In other words, they fell into apostasy. They fell away from the truth. They apostatized. Now, before that causes you to think that, that I'm heretical in some way, understand the Bible speaks about this. Jesus spoke about this. He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. He said there will come a day of judgment that there will be people that will say, Lord, look at everything that we did in your name. Look at all of our works of self-righteousness. Look at all of the, the things about us that look right. And he says, I will profess to them, depart from me. You are a worker of iniquity, and I never knew you. These people don't lose their salvation, though they professed it and maybe even believed that they had it. They never were Christ's. Peter talks about it. Paul talks about it. You and I would do well to be warned about it. I read those words from, from Matthew 7 where, Paul say, where, where Jesus says that, and I have to ask the question, Lord, is that me?
I do not want to be deceived in that way. So convinced of my self-profession that I am shocked on the day of judgment that I will be turned away. Now, folks, I don't say that to scare you. I know some of you, I had a woman one time come up to me in a revival service after I'd said that and say to me, Brother Kirk, you don't really believe that about yourself, do you? And I said to her, ma'am, you are foolish if you don't believe it could be you. We all need to recognize it's possible to have a profession and not have a possession of Christ as Savior. These people knew the talk. They didn't have the walk. They probably once professed Christ. Somewhere along the way, they abandoned their profession and their obedience to Christ. Apostasy had set in. And I believe that probably, number four, they still had some contact and influence on the Philippian believers. These were people that the Philippians knew. These were people that the Philippians were in danger of following that evil example. By the way, let me step aside from that and say to you, this idea of falling away from the Lord and falling away from church, did you know that we are in right now the greatest defection of the faith of people any time in the history of the church. Did you know that? In the last 25 years, the last 25 years, 40 million people have walked away from the church in America. Now granted, many of those people don't see themselves as walking away from Christ but they are walking away from active participation in the body of Christ. And I want to tell you, whether they see that as defection of the faith or not, it is a step that will lead to there ultimately. 40 million. That's more than the number of professions of faith during the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and all the professions of faith under evangelists like Billy Graham and others put together. And some of them are your family members. And some of them are mine. Some of them still consider their names on the roll of this church, though they've not darkened the door in weeks, months, some cases, years. My friend, if that's not apostasy, it is certainly the first and a major step towards apostasy. Satan is an evil deceiver. He is a roaring lion. He would storm into this worship center right now and tear us apart if God would let him but you alienate yourself from the people of God and from the church of God and think that you can stand in your personal relationship with God without the church, without God's people, without the built-in protection of being under the shepherd in a flock 
uh, that is faithful, ministering to one another, the one another's of Scripture. You are a fool. You are open game for the enemy. Okay, that's the hopeless. The hopeless. Third point, you have the message. Who are then the hopeful? And I want you to notice the spelling. Not the hopeful, because that leaves room for doubt, and maybe not, right? That's what H-O-P-E-F-U-L means, hopeful. It means wishful thinking. But I'm talking about the Bible kind of hope that is confidence and assurance that has an anchor, that has a foundation, that is a solid rock based on Christ, who are the hopeful people. Verses 20 and 21 describe them. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice the five things he said about the hopeful. These are the people we need to follow if we want to be filled with the fullness of the hope of glory. Number one, Follow people who have a heavenly citizenship. A heavenly citizenship. The Bible tells us very plainly, just like this church at Philippi, remember, this is a Roman colony, not just a city in the empire. It is a little Rome. These people had instant Roman citizenship. Although Rome was 850 miles to the west, these people were citizens of Rome, and they took pride in that. And so he tells this church that is being persecuted by the non-believers around them, listen, better than having your citizenship in Rome, our citizenship is in heaven that you are an outpost, you are a colony of heaven that right there where you are. And beloved, understand, that's what Calvary Church is. We are an outpost of heaven. We are a colony of heaven. We are ambassadors for Christ, every one of us. That's what Paul told the church at Corinth. We represent Jesus. We speak for him. We have a heavenly citizenship. What does that make your relationship to the world? To the world, these are the words the New Testament uses. Christians are exiles. Exiles. You read that in 1 Peter. And not just exiles, but Peter calls us elect exiles. You have been chosen by God. You were chosen by him in eternity past in his sovereignty. He predetermined you. He chose you. He called you to himself. You are elect exiles. Not only are you exiles, you are pilgrims. Pilgrims. You don't have to wear a funny black hat to be a pilgrim. That's a joke. That's a joke. Thought maybe some of you may need that to wake back up. And you didn't laugh. Perfect evidence you were asleep. Right? We are pilgrims. What does that mean? 
It means we are strangers in a foreign land. He calls us sojourners. We are temporary residents. Temporary residents. He calls us, in one place even, aliens. Aliens. We are living in a land that we do not belong to. That puts us in direct contrast to those people in the, in the first description where he said that they were very earthly in their thinking, that they were, their minds and hearts were set on earthly things. Well, if we're citizens of heaven, it means that our minds and our hearts are set on heavenly things. And beloved, listen, we all need to take heed to that truth because we all love at least some of the things in this world far too much. Peter said, Beloved, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Those things wage war against your souls. They wage war against your souls. In the great faith chapter of Hebrews 11, he says, these all died in faith, these great men and women of faith. They never saw or experienced what was promised to them because it was something promised. They looked for a city whose builder and maker was God, a city with foundations, but that city was a heavenly city. They looked, looked for that, and they lived for that, and they acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We need to learn to live as exiles to this earth. So they are citizens of heaven. Not only that, he said they have a Savior. They have a Savior. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Put in direct contrast to those he's already described, those that, that whose God is their belly and they're headed for perdition. In contrast to that, there are these people like me, Paul says, and like my comrades in the faith, that, that we have a Savior, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who died for our sins. He's the one that is highly exalted. He's the one that every mouth is going to confess and every knee is going to bow before him as Lord. We have a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, number three, we await a Savior. What does that suggest? It means that that Savior is coming back one day. Yes, he came 2,000 years ago. He lived for some 33 and a half years. The, the story and the whole um, meaning of redemption, dying and rising from the dead. But he is coming back again, this time not as a servant, this time not in shame, this time not to be crucified, to be spit upon and to be killed and crucified and buried. But this time he is coming back on a white horse. He is coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's coming back with a crown on his head. He is coming back in great glory. And we await him, Paul says, 
and we still await him today. And just because it's been 2,000 years or almost 2,000 years since the time of Christ doesn't diminish in one whit the reality that Jesus is coming back. If you believe that, say amen. He's coming back. The prophets predicted it. Did you know that the Old Testament prophets predicted the second coming of Christ twice as many times as they predicted the first coming of Christ? They did. The prophets predicted it. At the birth of Christ and then at the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1, the angels, the angels proclaimed it. They said in Acts 1, Ye men of Galilee, why are you standing here looking into the heavens? They were watching Jesus go up in a cloud. What are you standing here for? They said, this same Jesus is going to come in like manner. The angels proclaimed it. The apostles preached it. They preached that message of the second coming of Christ. They wrote about it. We have their words in Scripture. But I'm going to tell you the best reason, not because of the prophets, not because of the angels, not because of the apostles, but Jesus himself promised it. Jesus himself promised it on the night before his crucifixion. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. I know you want a mansion all your own, but the Christian life here and there is not about your individuality. It's about your relationship with Christ and your relationship with other redeemed people. And the Jewish tradition was when a daughter or a son married, then they were uh, brought into and the house was added onto and that the family grew and grew and grew and grew. Many rooms in the house and that's what Jesus is saying. Then he asked, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, here's the promise, I will come again and I will take you to myself and that where I am, there you may be also. Paul wrote about it to the Thessalonians, people who had thought they had missed the resurrection. They had been given some false information and he's writing to assure them that the reality of Christ's coming was yet future and he says that when he comes there's going to be a resurrection of the dead in Christ. There's going to be a rapture of the living in Christ and there's going to be a reunion in heaven like you have never seen before. This is what we have. Citizenship in heaven. A Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. A Savior who has promised to come back again and take us with Him. And number four, it says He will transform them completely. He will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. That when we meet the Lord in the air, 
He is going to move in his creative power. Remember, Jesus was the creator who created the world. He was the creator who created the animal life. He was the creator who created humanity. He was the creator who knelt down and scraped together some dust and formed a man. A man that had no life in him until he reached down and leaned over and breathed a living soul, the imago Dei, the image of God, into Adam's nostrils. And man became what? A living body? No. He became a living soul. You are not a body who happens to have a soul. You are a soul bound for eternity that happens for this temporary time. As exiles, you happen to have your soul contained in a human body that is sinful, that is defiled, that is weak, that is growing older and diminishing every single day. Though our flesh wastes away, Paul tells the Corinthians, our spirits are being renewed day by day. He's going to transform that body, though. He's going to make it just like his. He's going to fashion it anew. He is going to take our miserable and our wretched condition and do away with it. And we are going to be conformed and be just like him in perfection. Never again to be tempted by sin. Never again to feel the ill effects of COVID or a cold or a sore back from working too hard. Never again to know any of those things we will have. And number five is going to do this by the power by which he reigns as the Lord over all things. His eternal power is going to accomplish it. The supreme Lord of glory is going to make you and me true and perfect reflections of himself. Paul could say to the Philippian believers, imitate me, follow me, focus, keep your eyes on others like me, those who are citizens of heaven, those who are representing the Lord Jesus Christ in this world, those who await a Savior, those who know that, that we're going to one day be like Him completely, He could say, follow me as I follow Christ because we are heaven-bound people. And this gives hope. Hope. Confident assurance, a steadfast anchor, an anchor for the soul. And we can be perfect reflections of the Lord of glory. That's why I press on. That's why I keep moving towards Christ. Well, as we've already seen, the book of Hebrews talks about our hope being like an anchor, like a solid ground beneath our feet. For 2,000 years, those truths have inspired pastors to preach, evangelists to evangelize, songwriters to write, musicians to 
form chords and notes to communicate that truth. And for years, 2,000 years, that very mental picture of an anchor, anchored to Christ, standing on solid ground, has inspired believers. Believers like Priscilla Owens, a Sunday school teacher in the 1800s, who wrote, asking the question, will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. Fashioned to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and strong in the Savior's love. Or like Edward Moat, a carpenter and just simple cabinet maker who wrote the words, my hope is built on nothing less. than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and my stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, I believe that Paul's encouraging words that close out chapter 3 actually carry over to chapter 4 and verse 1, which says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved Stand firm in the Lord. That's my desired prayer for each of us. These verses have inspired one pastor to write a brief prayer for his congregation. As our musicians make their way this way, let me read this prayer to you, for it is my prayer for you, and it is our closing prayer for today. Listen to these words. May the body of Christ provide us with many examples to follow. May the lives of the enemies of the cross be cause for tears and alarm. May the wonders of our citizenship and our future dance in our souls. And may we stand firm in the pursuit of 
the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. All of God's people said, Amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.